0: This morning on the second Sunday of Advent, we continue this series called Come Again, Lord Jesus. Last week I mentioned that we're focusing more on the second Advent of Jesus than on the first. Advent simply meaning arrival or coming. We're usually talking about his first arrival at Christmas as a baby in a manger, but his second Advent, the return of the King at the end of history, that's our focus during this season. And it reminds us to look forwards, not just backwards, as if the coming of Jesus was all about merely fun and celebration and a birthday party. To get a glimpse of what his second advent is all about, we're going to turn to one of the most controversial chapters in all the Bible. 24th chapter of Matthew. It has wide interpretations. It's the basis for all kinds of books and movies, especially those starring Kirk Cameron. Um, But it has a simple message that we're going to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 24. It's a long passage, but I think it'll be worth it. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of these days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. Then they will, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one of the end of the heavens to the other. Verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, these things are beyond our ability to understand without your Spirit. So we simply pray, fill us with your Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us understand from this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. quite a passage. You know, people love the idea of looking into the future. If Nostradamus were alive today, he'd have 70 million Twitter followers and he'd be filthy rich. People would want to know exactly what he thinks about everything. Fortune tellers and daily horoscopes have their place, have their following. In some religious circles, prophecy conferences are all the rage. That's when you get the masses showing up at church all week long. Charismatic church leaders make big money preaching and writing books about their particular discernment of the end times and all the signs of the coming of Jesus. But prophecy in the Bible is much more about forth-telling than it is about foretelling. Those two words are very similar, those phrases, but they're very uh, distinct in their purposes. B- biblical prophecy, to put it another way, is more about speaking truth and affirming God's revelation than it is about predicting the future. telling. far more than foretelling. Another way to put it is this. Prophecy is more concerned about what you need to know than what you don't know and can't know. In this chapter that I've, I've read uh, half of, which so many Christians misuse as some sort of confusing code to predict end times details, what Jesus wants us to hear is pretty clear and not very controversial. Three things that we're going to look at this morning. His predictions, two of them, our perseverance and preparation, and it just happened, okay? I haven't alliterated in many years, but uh, I was looking for a third P and it's, it's there. Um, parousia. It's a book that you learn in, uh, a word that you learn in seminary and has no other relevance other than to, as a third P. But Parousia, the return of the King. All right, predictions. The disciples are in Jerusalem, and and they're probably marveling at the splendor of the temple. And Jesus takes that opportunity to tell them about two events that'll happen. Jerusalem will be destroyed. It'll happen in 70 A.D., which is about 40 years from when he says it. And the second prediction that he makes is he himself will return in glory at the end of history. Most of what I read covers the first prediction, the fall of Jerusalem. Um, It it was a horrific apocalyptic event that began with a months-long siege of Jerusalem by the Roman army. That led to famine and cannibalism, ugly details, horrific details. When the Romans breached the walls of the city, over a million Jews were slaughtered and over 100,000 of the survivors were enslaved. For the residents of Jerusalem, these were end times tribulations. This was the end of the world as they knew it, and that was not an exaggeration. Utter devastation. When we get to around verse 29, Jesus shifts his focus to his return at the end of history, prediction number two. And the the struggle in understanding chapter 24, I don't claim to understand it, uh, but uh, but I'm sharing what I believe Jesus would have us know very clearly that we don't have to dig for. The the challenge in understanding chapter 24 is that these two predictions seem to seamlessly run into each other. It's hard to figure out which um, event Jesus is talking about when he makes these references. But biblical prophecy often has this telescopic effect um, when you look at a mountain range it's you would think that the the peaks are um, so close that they're touching one another only when you fly over this mountain range do you realize or could you realize that some of these peaks are miles apart they're just compressed from our very limited perspective as little human beings stuck to earth by gravity How much more so when God looks across the the corridor of all of history, does he have the perspective that he can line them up? And it seems, as Peter says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. To the Lord, these things can be compressed into one sermon. To us, they may be thousands of years apart. It's just a matter of perspective. So the destruction of Jerusalem, 40 years from when Jesus speaks it, prediction number one, is a very relevant example to these disciples of what this last stage of history is going to bring to humanity. Distress, tribulation, suffering, turmoil, the greatest accomplishments of humanity like this temple and its time, and it was magnificent. Absolutely a a, a marvel of of human engineering. The best that humanity can come up with won't last. But these are all birth pains leading up to the return of the king at the end of history. Just this week I came across two articles by well-known pastors in America. One pointed to ISIS in Iraq and Syria as fulfillment of biblical prophecies and quoted former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel Because he said that a new world order is evolving. And this pastor said, aha, you see? These are signs that Jesus is coming back any time now. Another pastor insists that the end times started with 1948's uh, reestablishment of the state of Israel. Because he says many of the prophecies in the New Testament could not be fulfilled until Israel was at home in her nation. I differ with that. I don't think it's necessarily the case. People are always trying to decode scripture. To point to Russia, especially back in the Soviet era, and China, and Iran, and Sudan, and saying, aha, these modern day um, nations, and political ideologies, and um, incredibly charismatic leaders are representative of this reference in scripture, and that means that we're that much closer to the end times. That's just not what Matthew 24 and the rest of Scripture are intended to lead us down. This kind of speculation. Here's the point of Jesus' teaching. He's demonstrating the power and the authority of his word. He says that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and it was. He says that he'll return at the end of history, and he will. His predictions aren't given so that we'll waste our time trying to figure out the code Jesus' predictions give us assurance that he is Lord of all of history, and they motivate us to simply follow and trust and obey. This isn't a puzzle to be assembled. This is a life plan to be followed. Deuteronomy 29.29 is a helpful verse in this regard. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. There are some things that are mysterious. They are left to God's perfect wisdom. We are not supposed to know. We don't need to know. May, uh, might God reveal these things to us one day when we've been there 10,000 years um, bright shining as the stars? Perhaps, but that will be his prerogative. What we need to know has been revealed to us so that we may follow all the words of this law, so that we may walk by faith, respond in dependent childlike trust. That's the kind of stuff we need to know about his character as a perfect father, about the extent of his love and sacrificing his own son. That stuff has all kinds of relevance for us. The secret things, they belong to God. By the way, in case you care, um, here's the, a summary of my personal view of end times from Bible study. I believe we're in the millennium now. I believe that uh, the millennium, which is the thousand year reign of Christ, um, isn't necessarily a thousand three hundred sixty five day years. It was kicked off this millennium by his resurrection victory over sin and death. That makes me amillennial millennial. If you've never heard that word, forget that I ever said it. Uh, But that's the term. Uh, I would be a millennial. And when Jesus comes back, yes, he will gather his people who have placed their faith in him as Lord and Savior. And he will meet us in the air. That's the rapture. But that's it. End of story. Those who rejected him, those who uh, did not place their faith in him, aren't left behind to have a second chance at believing End of story. Everyone is judged on the basis of faith or rejection, uh, separated into those who want to be in the presence of God, heaven, and those who never wanted to be in the presence of God and pushed him away, hell. The next chapter in Matthew's Gospel is going to make that very clear. We're not going to get into it. I'll I'll, I'll allude to one section in a little bit, though. Two predictions Jesus makes. Our, Our calling, though, secondly, is not to join in the prediction game. Our calling is to persevere and to prepare. Digging into prophecy details is a waste of time unless it reminds God's people not to get too comfortable in this world, in this life. Unless digging into prophecy strengthens your faith that God's word is sure and certain, that he is a faithful God, that he's powerful enough to bring about his faithful promises in human history unless digging into prophecy prompts you to examine yourself to see if they see if you are ready to meet your maker face to face the only way you're ready to meet your maker is if you are reconciled to him as josh pointed out earlier through a relationship of faith particularly in jesus death on the cross in your place you're ready to meet your maker Talking about prophecy, talking about the return of Jesus, wondering when it will happen, has profit if it furthers your readiness, your watchfulness. Here's what we can know. A few things, starting in verses 4 and 5. There will be a lot of deception. How do you know what's fake out there? He, he, he implies even the elect will be deceived, verse 24, if that were possible. What does that mean, Jesus? I don't know. But there's going to be a lot of deception. How do you figure out what's fake? You know, um, years ago, when I was a kid, my dad ran a store front right across the street from Madison Square Garden. And he instantly knew when he got paid with a counterfeit bill. How did he know? He never took a class on detecting fakes that the CIA put on for small business owners, what he did was he handled, because most people paid with cash back in the day, he handled hundreds of bills a day. He um, actually probably handled thousands because not only was he paid, but then he counted it out to walk across the street to the Bowery Bank to make his deposits. And his thousands of handlings of the real, the genuine, the authentic, allowed him to, in an instant, through his feel, the feel of his fingers, know what was fake. The only way you know what is deception, what is false, what is a a fake, a substitute, is to know the real thing. How do you know the real thing? God has revealed truth, authenticity, revelation to us through his word. People of God need to be people of the book in order to detect what's fake out there, in order to figure out what is spoken from the pulpit, whether it is Consistent with God's word or just the wisdom of man. There's going to be a lot of deception as we persevere and as we prepare. Secondly, verses 6 through 8, there will be distress. Uh, another word that's um, translated, uh, used to translate that word is tribulation, war, famine, earthquakes, natural disasters, nations rising against nation. Those have filled... Um, the history books from every century throughout history. And those fill the news headlines practically on a daily basis even today. There's nothing new. Is it more intense? Some people would argue we've, we've never seen this kind of climate change and um, warring of, of peoples and disease despite these uh, medical scientific breakthroughs. But a Jerusalem resident from 70 A.D. very well may differ with you on whether it's gotten more intense. Parents eating their children. Swords separating heads from bodies. That's apocalyptic stuff. Is it worse today? I don't know. I do know we're closer because 2,000 years have gone by. But that's about it. There will be distress. Thirdly, in verses 9 through 11... Jesus says there will be persecution. Faithfulness will lead to suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's not much ambiguity there. And if you've never had any trials, you might rightly wonder whether you're following after the right Savior, who is described in the Scriptures as the suffering servant too easy as American Christians to be insulated from that reality. And then fourthly, one last thing we can know. Verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Some people say, aha, well, so as soon as a church is built or established and the gospel is preached in every country on the map then Jesus is going to come back. Well, How do we know? There, there are so many different definitions of people groups and nationalities and races. There's, there's so many languages. What we can know, what we do trust in, is that as we obey the Great Commission, every evangelistic encounter, every conversion, every church planted, every new Bible translation for a particular people group, every missionary raised up and sent, every kingdom prayer brings us closer to the return of the king, the second advent of Jesus. Our job, not to wonder when that is, but to persevere. Last week I I, I talked about first advent expectations that were not quite right, second advent promises, and then thirdly, in between advent responsibilities. That's what we're talking about. Until Jesus comes back, we have a calling to persevere and to prepare. Last thing. One thing that we can't know. Verse 36 is one of the keys to debunking so many of the speculations that are running rampant. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Look, if Jesus himself didn't know when the Father was going to say, Jesus, it's time, go, how, how could he have... Uh, been saying that the fall of Jerusalem was going to run right into the end of history. Clearly that didn't happen. Some early disciples actually had thought that, and we can't blame them. Um, but, but he couldn't have been, because he still, to this day, somehow puts aside his divine prerogative, because he is God and man. Somehow he puts aside that ability and right and submits himself to the Father. He is ready To go in obedience to the Father, but He Himself does not know. So why would we waste time and energy trying to figure it all out? In the meantime, as we, uh, if we could turn back, Rachel, I I, um, messed up the order here. But as we look back at the first part of this list in the previous slide, who would choose to follow this Jesus? Who would choose to? That's what needs to fuel our longing for his return. And to say, as the next to last verse in all the Bible says, come, Lord Jesus, advent again, Lord Jesus, and finish what you have started and redeem your people. That, that's where we go thirdly and lastly, the parousia. Uh, it's a Greek word. It simply means present, but it's used by the New Testament writers 17 times to talk about the second coming of Jesus. The return of the king. At his first advent, he came in humility. Born in the manger. At his second advent, he will come in glory. The son of man riding on the clouds. No one will doubt who he is. At his first coming, he came to bring salvation. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. At his second coming, he will come to finish that salvation and to bring judgment. You know... Verses 40 to 41 are, are some of the more difficult verses, and I didn't read them, but they seem to, um, they, they make it seem like some people will be left behind. This is actually a, a core set of verses for that whole, you know, I read the whole series. It was fun. Left behind series, the books. Um, I won't watch the movies because I have better things to do, but um It makes it seem like some will be left behind. But Jesus' teaching on his return flows right into chapter 25. He's got a lot more to say. And um, starting in verse 31 of chapter 25, he talks about the sheep and the goats. He he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will separate one people from another. Um, Sheep on one side, goats on the other. You want to be a sheep, by the way, if you confuse your um, animal um, kingdom. And some will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And this section has a lot of emphasis on faithfulness, not to say that you can earn your way into heaven, but faithfulness is always evidence of a faith relationship. Faithfulness is the uh, discharging of these in-between responsibilities that we talked about last Sunday. Last uh, week also, I, I um, made reference to Psalm 73, Asaph, who has a, uh, a, a tough time looking around. He cries out to God. He complains because he sees the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. And he says, have I kept my heart pure in vain? And, and the turning point I mentioned last week is when he realizes that God will set all things right. God will vindicate his people. God will um, judge His enemies' eternal reward will be given to those who place their faith in the Son. You know, in a few weeks, um, a handful of little boys and girls might cry on Christmas morning because they open a box and there's clothes in it. There's nothing worse than built-up anticipation that's dashed. Clothes. There will be no such disappointment in Christ's people. When Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth will be immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. There's a pastor some of you know of named David Platt. He wrote a commentary describing the return of Christ. He quotes the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia. And it goes like this. I didn't put it up because it's a story and it's meant to be heard. As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. For them, the the kids of Narnia, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what we have to look forward to, at the parousia, the return of the king, immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Last little story. There's a little boy sitting on the stairs of his church, reading his Bible. His pastor comes by, glad to see this, and then he chuckles, because he sees that the boy is reading the book of Revelation. He says, young man... Do you even understand what you're reading? The little boy says, Pastor, yes, I do. And the pastor says, well, could you explain then to me what the book of Revelation means? And the little boy said, that's easy. We win. In, In a life filled with tribulation, You know, the holiday season's not all garland and glitter and lights. For some of you, it's a very difficult time because you've lost a loved one. For some of you, you haven't lost a loved one, but you're just not as happy and joyful as all the little elves around you seem to be. In this world, we shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world the king who defeated sin and death by walking out of that grave is coming again. He will vindicate his people. He will put away his and our enemies and he will give you an inheritance that is immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray that. Lord, We don't know the day or the hour. And Lord Jesus, you tell us, you don't know either. But until then, whether it happens before communion finishes or whether it's another few millennia, give us strength to be faithful. Give us strength and patience to wait upon you. Fill us with faith, Lord, when we wonder if, like Asaph thought, if this is all worth it. You are faithful, And you're powerful enough to bring about every single one of your promises. We trust in you. In the name of Jesus, amen.